The Gospel of Mark doesn't give us much history about Jesus' past. There is no genealogy in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark just simply points to Christ's immediate ministry. But the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are a different story. Matthew gives us an extensive genealogy, and Luke tells us a detailed account of Jesus' birth. Matthew and Luke both kind of combined tell us that the first 30 years of Jesus' life was spent in basically obscurity. It was spent in one tiny village called Nazareth. He wasn't a prominent person in society. He was a nobody living in one city his entire life. Go with me to Matthew 3.13 to see that, and then we'll look at Luke 3.23 to also confirm that. Matthew 3.13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by him. And we know that he's coming from Galilee. He's coming from the city of Nazareth. He's coming up to be baptized to be obedient. And then in Luke, in Luke 3, 23, in Luke 3, 23, we see that he came out of 30 years of obscurity to this point in time for a divine purpose. It says that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So he comes again from Joseph, from Nazareth, from a small village. And Jesus was only known as a carpenter's son. That was his reputation. If you read the gospel account of John correctly, you find that Jesus did no miracles until he started his ministry at 30 years of age. He was unknown. He was, again, simply known as the carpenter or the carpenter's son. However, when we come to Mark's gospel, that changes. Look with me at Mark 1, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11 in a moment. In Mark's gospel, God makes it publicly clear. He gives public evidence that Jesus was more than a carpenter's son. Look with me at Mark 1, 9 through 11 this morning. In those days, speaking of the days of John, when John was ministering in the wilderness, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. God was giving public evidence to who Jesus truly is here. In Mark 1, 9-11, we see and hear, notice this in that text, you see and you hear three external evidences that proclaim that Jesus is more than a carpenter's son. The first one we see is that Jesus appeared in verse 9. He appeared as a substitute. That's why he's going to come at this time and begin his ministry. And secondly, we see that Jesus was anointed, in verse 10, as a conqueror. And thirdly, we see, actually we don't see, we hear, 
we hear that Jesus was affirmed by God the Father. He was affirmed to be a beloved son, obedient and dedicated to the Father's will in verse 11. What we see here in this text, in verses 9 through 11, what we see here is the triune grace of God at work. We see and hear all three persons of the Holy Trinity giving public evidence to who the Messiah truly is. That's what we see here. This is a Trinitarian text. It exalts our triune God. All three persons are either seen or heard simultaneously here. In Mark 1.9, we see with our eyes, we're there with John, if you will. Because when you read the other accounts and the other Gospels, you see that this is, from Mark's perspective, he's speaking for Jesus. He sees these things firsthand. But when you read the other accounts, you find that everyone sees this. John, the baptizer, sees this as well. He hears this as well. But in 1.9, we see that, number one, Jesus, the Son of God appeared as a willing and obedient substitute for sinners. That's why he comes. That's why he comes to this point in his ministry, this point in his life. At 30 years of age, he was now old enough to become a priest. He was now willing and able to come into the ministry that the Father had called him into. And he eagerly sought this. That's why he tells John, when John balks at the idea of baptizing him, he says, no, you must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized, immersed by John in the Jordan. In those days, again, is speaking of at the height of John's announcement or pronouncement ministry, when he was pronouncing that the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. Look to the Lamb of God. He is coming. It was at the height of this that Jesus came from nowhere. He came from the town with a reputation for producing nothing but trouble, according to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And, and the reason Nathaniel said that was, is because the people of Galilee were intermixed with Gentiles. There were Gentiles and Jews living among one another. And the Galileans were known to be rude people, less cultured people than those in Jerusalem. And again, because I think they were largely influenced by Gentiles. And that's one reason that they were despised and rejected by those in Judea. They weren't accepted readily. And this seems like a very odd place for the king of kings to come from. If you know anything about Nazareth, Nazareth was surrounded by mountain, kind of a foothill type mountain area. And Jesus comes, if you will, out of the shadows of Nazareth. And he appears as a light. And he appears as a light to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's good news for us. Look what Isaiah 9 says about where Jesus came from. Isaiah 9. Isn't it good to think that God in his sovereignty planned to save a people, both Jew and Gentile alike, rich or poor, male or female, black or white. He chose to save a people through the work of his son. The son had sympathy for people like us. He saw us as his own. He came from a place where he recognized our need and knew that he came to bring us the light of hope. Look what it says in verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, 
speaking about the time of Christ, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations is how the ESV puts it, but it's also Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. That's, that's just a foreshadow of the gospel, is it not, for us? We are the people who walked in darkness. And God in His mercy came to us through the person and work of Christ. And He appeared and the light shined upon us to transform us. That's good news. He was saying that this is a, a shadow of that which was to come to all who dwell in darkness. That's why Mark tells us in Mark 1.9 that Jesus appeared. He appeared to bring the glorious light of the gospel to sinners. And He appeared to do that through His obedience to God's commands, God's directions. Verse 9 of Mark tells us that He appears to be baptized by John in the Jordan. He came to be baptized by the prophet John, the one who was announcing the coming of the Messiah to signify, He is here, I have arrived. But We know that John's baptism was for the repentance of sin. So we have to ask the question, Why then would Jesus come and say, I must be baptized? Why must He do this? Jesus is the sinless Son of God. He had nothing to repent of, but we do. I think this is the first substitutionary act that we see in Christ's ministry. He comes into the world and begins immediately to fulfill the righteous requirements that God has demanded of us. We should repent and trust in God. Jesus did that perfectly. If you look at the other gospel accounts, you find an answer, kind of a multifaceted answer to why Jesus was baptized. Look at John's gospel, John, John 1.29. We see a glimpse of it here. And as I studied this this week, I, I realized that it has to be multifaceted because there is a depth to the work of Christ that we will never truly grasp on our own. But it is, is broad and it is deep what he has done. But here in John 1.29... Through 34, we get a glimpse of what what he did and why he came to be baptized. John's account tells us that Jesus' baptism would identify him to Israel. This baptism would show Israel that the Messiah has come. So it would also validate the prophet John. John was one standing in the wilderness proclaiming, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. And Jesus comes and says, I'm here. I'm going to. Fulfill all the requirements of God, and you will testify to this through my baptism. And also in John's gospel here, we see that his baptism would also be the beginning or the starting point or the launching point of his public ministry. And all of these were required to reveal who God's Messiah was. In that sense, he's fulfilling all righteousness. And actually, John's participating in that. Look what it says in verse 29. The next day... He saw Jesus, this is John speaking about John here. He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, this is the one. He's telling Israel, I am identifying the Messiah. Here's what he's coming to do as well. He's coming to redeem sinners. Then he says this, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, speaking of Jesus' supremacy or his preeminence, his status. I myself did not know him. In other words, I didn't 
It's not that he didn't know who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was. It was his cousin, his younger cousin. But what he's saying is, I haven't had intimate fellowship with him for 30 years. I haven't been around him. I haven't known him personally. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. There's my purpose. There's one of Jesus' purposes in being baptized. To fulfill the righteous requirements of God and to reveal a Messiah to Israel. And John bore witness. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So this is, again, this is testifying that this one that came, he is coming with power. He is coming to start a ministry that is new and is different than anything you've ever seen because the Spirit of God resides on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Now, again, this is just telling us why Jesus was to be baptized, to validate God's command to John, to point to the Messiah, call people to turn to the Messiah, and for Jesus to begin his ministry. We see more of this, more of a glimpse of why he was baptized in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 3, go back there with me. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting For us to fulfill, for us, notice, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, it says. Matthew 3, 13 through 15 tells us that Jesus was baptized to display his perfect obedience to God's requirements. He becomes our substitute in that sense. He fulfilled the righteous requirements that God commands all of us to obey. It's interesting. We're called to trust in God. We're called to repent of our sins. We know that Jesus, here in this testimony, He obviously did both perfectly. He trusted in His Father's plan completely, His Father's revelation, His Father's word completely. And Jesus turned from sin continually. He is the perfect believer. He is the perfect repenter in that sense. He had not sinned. He was without sin Yet he continually turned from sin. He saw sin. He experienced temptation in the desert. But he always turned away and always trusted in God's provisions through his word. In that sense, Jesus was baptized for us. Because we don't do that. We don't continually turn from sin. We don't completely trust in God as we ought. But Jesus did that. His baptism represented what he himself would undergo for us in his death. Jesus, on the cross, would be immersed into God's righteous indignation. His wrath against our sins was poured out upon Him. He was immersed into God's wrath for us. I think that the baptism represents that, represents the work He would do at the cross. He is going to be immersed under God's wrath to cleanse us, to make us rise with Him to newness of life. And after he is immersed into God's wrath, he rises up from the water, rises up from the grave, from the tomb, because he was the sinless Son of God who came to be our substitute. 
he rises up declaring that God's wrath was fully satisfied. He comes out of the water and hearing from God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so it was when he rose from the dead. He was accepted as our sin offering. And now by faith, we're accepted through his righteousness, through his obedience in baptism. In Jesus' baptism, again, I think we see his first public act of substitution for sinners. Mark 1.9 shows us that God the Son appeared and took on flesh to become our righteous substitute. That's why he came. Because we know, and Scripture is clear, that we cannot satisfy God by our works. We need the righteousness of another. We can't satisfy God's righteous requirements on our own. So Jesus comes to fulfill them for us. And now by faith, we are declared righteous through His obedience, not ours. That's good news, folks. We fail in our obedience constantly as Christians. And I look back to the cross, back to the atoning work of Christ, back to the obedience of Jesus when I fall short. I stand under His righteousness. And and by the way, if you believe that by faith that you are saved by the declaration of God through the work of His Son, that will change the way you live. Though you can't be obedient, that will be the desire of your heart because Jesus was obedient unto death for you. Therefore, you will be changed by His obedience inwardly and outwardly. You will now desire now and eternally to be holy, to walk in honor of the king who died for you, who obeyed for you, who lived for you. I think that's what Mark 1.9 is just giving us a glimpse of when we see Jesus entering into the waters of baptism for us. Mark 1.10 makes it clear that he was giving evidence that he was more than a carpenter's son here. In verse 10, we see that number two, Jesus was anointed or blessed, or the seal of God's approval was put upon him by God the Holy Spirit. He was anointed by God the Holy Spirit. He was anointed as a sin-conquering Messiah. Messiah means God's holy anointed one, God's set-apart redeemer. And by what's happening here in verse 10, you'll see that God is basically saying, I am blessing this one. I am anointing this one because he is coming to do what you cannot do. He is coming to conquer sin for you. He is your Messiah. And my blessing is on him. And my power is going to be in him. He is going to fulfill his ministry by my power. What's great here is you see some of the, what we call the hypostatic union going on. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Yet he didn't fulfill his ministry fully in the flesh. It was by the power of the Spirit who dwelt in him. And it's that same Spirit that now by faith through him we have received to do the ministry we're called into. But in verse 10, what we see is we see the anointing coming from God. We see the blessing coming from God, the Spirit, coming upon him through God the Father to say, this is the one who will conquer for you and for me. He is the one who will overcome sin by the Spirit's power. See, that's how we're saved. It's by the Spirit's power, not by our power. It's by the work of Christ and the Spirit's power that we are convicted of our sins and we are brought to faith. 
Verse 10 says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is just a fascinating text. When he came up out of the water, implying he had been immersed into the water, he had went into the water, he was coming up out of the water, again representing the death he would die, and he would go into the grave and then rise again. But immediately, it says, or simultaneously, as he was coming, just imagine the picture of this, it's a graphic image, as he's gone into the water, and as he's coming up out of the water, simultaneously, as he's coming up, Jesus visibly saw, or the, the word in the Greek is iden, he saw With his natural eye is the idea here. He saw the heavens opening. Could you imagine this? The obedient Son of God following the Father's will in perfect unity with Him as He follows the Father's will to go into the ministry that He is called to go into, which would be to die for our sins, conquer sin for us. The Father is so pleased with this act of obedience that He rends the heavens open wide so He can have direct communication with His Son. The word in the Greek for opening is schizo. It means that Jesus simultaneously saw as He came up out of the water, the heavens split open. The idea in the Greek is ripped apart. What I think we're seeing here is we're seeing God the Father's response to God the Son's obedience. See, He's pleased in His obedience, not in ours. Ours is always tainted with sin. Jesus was perfect and righteous. And yet the task that He was called to go into was deadly. It was devastating but it was for God's glory and our good. And God was pleased with His Son's obedience on our behalf. And He rends the heavens open. God the Father rips heaven apart in order to communicate publicly that He loves this Son in whom He is well pleased. He loves Him and He sets His seal of approval upon Him by the Holy Spirit descending and anointing Him ordaining Him. That, that blessing is seen as a, the Spirit descending on Him like a dove, verse 10 says. The Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. He is a Spirit. Yet, it's, He's described here as descending upon Him in the form of a dove. Luke 3.22 describes the same event. And the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove or as unto a dove, gently coming down upon him, showing that he belongs to him. He is brought to him directly. He is approved here. There is peace here between God and his Son, and the Spirit unites them in that sense. He is pleased. His seal has come, and it gently folds around Christ. And the idea here in the Greek, when it talks about the Spirit descended upon him into Christ or empowering Christ. The Spirit that came down enveloped Him, filled Him, if you will. And it was visible because it was supposed to be a public testimony of God's approval, God's blessing. And it was also going to empower Jesus for His messianic ministry. See, Jesus was fully sealed. He was fully empowered by the Holy Spirit to publicly evidence that he himself was set apart, sanctified, holy, the Messiah. 
This is a public testimony to Jesus' holiness. So from this point forward, the world publicly will know that this is the Holy One. Every act He does is holy and ordained by God, blessed by God, empowered by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of holiness. So whenever the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon and it's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's why. You're saying that the power by which I do the things that I do is from the devil, yet it is obvious and publicly acknowledged that it came from the Spirit of God Himself, the Holy Spirit. He Himself came visibly to dwell in Jesus permanently, to empower His ministry. In Matthew 3.16, we won't read that, but there again, it, it speaks about the voice and the act of the Holy Spirit coming and the voice coming out of heaven. And it's speaking in the sense that everyone heard this voice. Everyone saw this Spirit descending. It was a public declaration that Christ was set apart to conquer sin. He was holy. He had a divine purpose in coming. This anointing came from God. And we know in the Old Testament that an anointing oil was given to those who were set apart for special services. In the Old Testament, we know that prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil to set them apart for their ministry, for their administration, for their duty. And what we see in Christ is He is all three, prophet, priest, and king. And He is anointed from God Himself, not by a mere man, not by John. This anointing is pouring down, if you will, out of heaven like a bottle of anointing oil, immersing Christ, enveloping Him, filling Him, if you will. Listen, Jesus didn't get the Spirit in doses. He was completely controlled, unlike any other human, because He was without sin. You and I are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, yet we also know that we have this unredeemed carcass. And that we fight against the Spirit because of our flesh. That battle never occurred in Christ. There was no battle. There was complete harmony, peace, unity, and complete power over sin. He was filled or completely controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit remained on Him is how the Scripture speaks of it. Look with me at Psalm 45. We're going to look at three passages. Psalm 45, Isaiah 11, John 3 to see how the Spirit came to Christ and what He did in His ministry through Christ. Psalm 45, 1-7. The psalmist writes this in verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. Now, what I want you to understand is every one of these themes that the psalmist sings about points to Jesus, the Messiah. I address my verses to the King, Christ. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You, speaking of Christ, are the most handsome of the sons of men. He's speaking about His nature. He says, grace is poured upon your lips. We know that that's all that came out of Jesus. Grace, God's favor. Every proclamation, every rebuke, it was still by the favor of God toward men. Therefore, God has blessed you because of the grace that comes from your lips, because you are more handsome, you are righteous, is the idea. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. 
Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, he's speaking of Jesus coming in his majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And then notice verse 6. Your throne, O God, this is speaking of Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This is Christ. And because you've loved righteousness, hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions fully. The oil of gladness, the oil that empowered him and ordained him, came to him fully. Isaiah 11. Now, this is important because when we talk about the substitutionary work of Christ, it's not just the cross. He was fully controlled and submitted to the Spirit and everything. Where we have failed to do that, he never failed. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord, this is pointing to what happened at his baptism, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is how John knew that this was the Messiah. He comes from the stump of Jesse, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That is upon him. Now, look what John, John's gospel, John 3 says in relation to all those previous texts. John 3, 31. He who comes from above is above me. He's majestic. Above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Who's superior, right? He bears witness to what? What he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The one who came, the one who spoke the words of God, the one who had the seal of God put upon him, he is speaking the word of God, and the Spirit is given to him without measure, not in doses, but completely. We, we need His empowerment. We need His obedience. We need Him to conquer sin for us. In His incarnation work, He didn't exert His divine power all the time, did He? He didn't say, I am God the Son, therefore this. But when He does do the ministry that is divine and spectacular, He does it by relying on God the Holy Spirit to direct His ministry. Again, that's exactly the way it should be with us. Yet he did it perfectly because he didn't have sin to muck it up. He didn't rely on human strength in his ministry. He relied on the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And so do we. Not on our power, not on our manipulation in ministry. We we can't even comfort one another in our own power. We need the comforter. And the comforter comes to accomplish his work. And he does so by empowering Christ first, completely. Look what Acts 10, 36 says about Christ's empowerment by the Spirit. His earthly ministry was empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Again, he was fully man and fully God. 
And yet he came to be not the one who asserted himself, but the one who came to be a sacrifice for sinners, a servant. And it was the Spirit of God who worked through him in his earthly ministry. Look what it says in 1036 through 38. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. You know this happened, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I think in that sense, he's speaking of God. The Holy Spirit dwelt upon him and in him, empowering him. He's the one who directed all of Jesus' ministry. He is the one who empowered him to do what we see in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. Turn with me there. Just look at the holy work that Christ came to do by the Spirit's power in chapter 1 of Mark. We know that it's because God has blessed him to be his instrument that this happens. But here in Mark 1.12, we see immediately that Christ conquered temptation for us, and we know that it's going to be by the Spirit's power. He didn't exert his deity here. It says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And we know that Christ conquered temptation in the wilderness for us. He didn't do it by asserting that he was the Son of God. He did it by saying, thus says the Word of God, which the Holy Spirit brought to his mind, his human mind. You realize that Jesus had to learn to tie his sandals. Jesus, as a child, had to learn to walk. Jesus, as a child, humanly speaking, had to learn to speak, to read, all the while, he's holding the universe together by the word of his power. Yet he is, he is fully human. He didn't assert his deity in his youth, and he wasn't asserting it in his adulthood either. He is trusting in the Spirit who drove him. The Spirit immediately directed him into the wilderness to be tempted for us, and he overcame by the Spirit's power and the word of God. And so can we, by the same means, through Christ. The word of God and the Spirit of God is what helps us in our time of need. But the Spirit working through Christ also in verse 21 tells us that, the, that He came and dwelled upon Him and in Him to teach God's Word with authority. Listen, no one teaches God's Word and it, it goes out void. No one teaches God's Word and it goes out to, to not. But when Jesus spoke the Word of God, it was different than any preacher has ever preached. He spoke as the one with authority. It was the Spirit who spoke through him directly here. In 121, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes always spoke secondhand, and actually, honestly, so do I. Right? I speak to you from the book. Jesus spoke to them from the Spirit. Jesus spoke directly, not secondhandly, not through traditions, but through his proclamations. It's amazing what we see here. They were astonished by his teaching. I can't even imagine preaching without sin. What a miracle that would be. What a transformation. How would it affect you if you could hear it without sin and immediately respond in rejoicing and obedience? Yet Jesus could do that 
He spoke because the Spirit was directing him. Verse 25, Christ, by the Spirit's power, cast out demons that controlled men. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. He's speaking to a spiritual being, a non-corporeal being, a demon. He's not physically coming up with some sort of shake this demon out of him. No, he's coming up and saying, Come out. That's a spiritual battle. He's doing so by the Spirit's power, not by his physical ability here. I think this is important when we think about our ministry as Christians and our lives as Christians. We live by the Spirit. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against spiritual powers, principalities. We we fight in faith according to God's Word, but by His Spirit... It's by His Spirit that people are brought to faith in Christ, not by our manipulation. We have to trust in that. It is the Spirit who can do the supernatural, not us. Jesus understood that. Christ also cleansed the leper perfectly with His own touch. But again, I think what we see here is it is the Spirit who works through Him. There in verse 41 bringing spiritual healing as well as physical healing to this man. He was moved with pity and he stretched out his hand and touched him. I think it was the Spirit who moved him. The comforter, the healer. He touched this man and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. That's a supernatural act, folks. God created the world by a supernatural act. He created life in the womb by a supernatural act. He cleanses physical conditions by a supernatural act. That is the Spirit's prerogative. It is the Spirit who works to the man, Christ Jesus. So we see the triune grace of God in Christ. He shows us what God is like. As impressive as all of these accounts are, as impressive as these are, there is a greater work that Jesus accomplished by the Spirit. And it was seen at the cross. Look with me at Hebrews 9. This was the greatest work that Jesus came to accomplish through the Spirit's power. Hebrews 9 and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, this is His incarnation, His incarnate body, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his holy blood, thus securing an eternal, an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or set apart for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through, notice, the eternal spirit. It was through the eternal spirit. This is the triunity of God at work here. Through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God, the judge. How through him, this is how much more through this offering will he purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? That, that is what Christ did ultimately. He offered himself through the eternal spirit. For us. He offered up, he conquered for us. He died for us. 
By the Spirit's power, He conquered what we could never conquer, which is sin and death. Mark 1.10 shows us that God the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus to be our holy sin conqueror. We cannot conquer sin on our own. It is impossible. You cannot. There are no amount of good works you can do to outdo one bad thing you've done. One sin against a holy and righteous God is enough to damn you for eternity. You cannot undo that through your fallenness because you're tainted with sin already. But by faith, we know through the Spirit's work that we are protected from sin's penalty because of Jesus' sacrifice. We're protected from sin's penalty and we're protected from the power and dominance of sin by trusting in Christ's power because He conquered it for us. He is our master, not sin. His conquering work, His anointing work was given to Him by the Father is now what changes our perspective about sin and our attitude and our actions. We trust in what He did. He paid the penalty that we owed, God, for our unrighteousness. He conquered that for us. And He conquered mastery over sin for us because He never sinned. He mastered it. He did what we could not do. He walked in complete obedience Sin had no power over him. It could not hold him in the grave. He was the Messiah who came to conquer for us. In Mark 1, 9 through 10, what we've seen so far is this. We've seen, one, the appearance of God the Son's obedience. We've seen the appearance of God the Son's obedience. And two, we have seen the anointing of God the Spirit poured out on Jesus. And in Mark 1, 11, we're about to hear God the Father, affirm His love for His beloved Son. And listen, this is important. As He affirms His love for His Son, He is affirming that His Son has done everything that is pleasing to Him, and therefore all who trust in the Son will also be beloved by the Father. We have that hope through Christ, because He pleased God in our behalf. In Mark 1.11, thirdly, we see that Jesus is affirmed by God the Father. Verse 11 says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. This affirmation evidenced that Jesus was more than a carpenter's son. What's it say? It's telling us that Jesus was God's own beloved Son. We hear God Himself, God the Father, boldly and publicly declaring that in verse 11. He says, a voice came from heaven. That's God's voice. It rent the sky in half. It ripped open the universe to speak directly to His Son, to proclaim the greatness of His Son, the pleasure that He had in His Son. You know, John was the one who was crying in the wilderness, and he is silenced when God thunders from heaven. He speaks. And when you read Matthew 3.16, John heard him. And I believe it was a public proclamation that you are my beloved son, which is a very important and significant text. What he says here in the Greek rendering of this is very important, okay? We're going to get technical for a second. He uses what we call the definite article in the Greek. And here's how it would be translated if he did it literally from the Greek. He says in this passage, You are the only son of my only agapeo. You are the only son of my only love. My love is to you and you alone. And here's the great news for us. 
if you've trusted in Jesus, you receive that love as well by faith in his accomplishments. And God can say of you, you are my beloved. You are my son. You are my daughter. Because I am pleased with my only son's accomplishment on your behalf. He says, you and you alone are my deeply loved. And what he uses here, the word is, is monogenes or monogenes. You are my only or my unique son, my begotten son. It means monogenes or monogenes means you are the only one of your kind. You are unique. You are the only one who is holy. You are the only one who is empowered completely by my spirit. And in you, I am pleased. And in turn, we know that by faith, all who trust in the work of Christ, the Spirit's power and the Father's love, they are protected. Verse 11, he says, With you, I am well pleased. Now, this is an infinitive statement due to the fact that he's speaking about Christ. He's infinite. He is without beginning, without end. So he's saying, with you, I am well pleased, infinitely. God is saying to Jesus, Jesus, in you alone, I have been pleased in eternity past. I am pleased presently in your actions, and I'll always be pleased in eternity future because you are pleasing to me. You are unique. You are my son. You come to do my will, and you do it perfectly. He does what we can't do. We cannot please the Father, but Jesus did it for us through His sacrifice, through His conquering of sin in our place, through His obedience. Mark tells us that Jesus' baptism pleased God the Father. Because I think in that, what we see is Jesus publicly displays complete and perfect submission to the Father's will, that which we fail to do. And God is pleased with those who obey His commands. We fall short of that. We can't keep His commands. Therefore, we look to the one who did it perfectly and was pleased, pleasing rather, to God as a result. I think He's also pleased with Jesus' baptism because it publicly declared that He accepted His role as our suffering Savior. He accepted the fact that He was coming to conquer through His death, that which we could not conquer, which would be sin and enslavement to sin. That was prophesied in Isaiah 42. Look with me quickly at that. Isaiah 42, 42, 1 through 7. This is what was prophesied about Christ. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. See there, God delights in his chosen one. This would be Christ, God the Son. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gave breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, speaking of Christ. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, a light to the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness." 
That is what Christ has done for us by the power of the Spirit and through the love of the Father. He is the one who is sent to be our suffering Savior. He is the one who saves us and secures us as God's children. He accomplished this perfectly. This was a triune act of God. We need to understand that. We need to understand something about everything Jesus did being significant and part of God's triune work on our behalf. We are saved. Understand this. We are saved. We talk about being saved by grace, which is absolutely true, but understand this. We are saved by triune grace. The grace of the Father, the grace of the Son, the grace of the Spirit, three in one. We are saved by the triune love and grace and the counsel of a God who is almighty, able to accomplish what we could not do. And He did so personally by sending His Son to be like us, yet unique, monogenes. And His Son did what He ordained in the counsel of His will before time and eternity passed. In John 10, we learn something about what God has done for us through Christ, what we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit doing, actually. Understand this. When we read this text, 27 through 29 in a moment, what we're going to see here is very important and very technical. Again, but listen, it's important, and it's something you can rejoice in as Christians. Jesus dies for all that are given Him by the Father before the world was created, before the foundation of the world. There were a people that God in His triune counsel in eternity past said, I have a people and I want to give them to you, my Son. They are given by the Father to the Son and they're given, get this, you are given as a love gift from the Father to the Son. If you're a believer, understand that. You are a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. Look what it says in 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you know his voice? Do you desire to follow him? It's nothing that you have done to accomplish that. That is the work of God the Father giving to his Son your soul. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now notice, we know here that it is the Father who gives his people to his Son, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Amen. Your salvation is only secure because of what God has given to His Son. Because of God the Son's work on our behalf, the Father is pleased, and He loves to give His Son this gift of your life. We are prizes that declare Christ's purity, Christ's acceptance by the Father. We are, listen to this, we are a gift wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, given back to God the Son, and God the Son is well pleased itself because we reflect Him, and there is nothing more glorious than Christ. He sees in us His righteousness. But that's not all. That's just the Father and the Son working together. All that are given to the Son will persevere in the faith to the very end because of the power of God the Holy Spirit. See, it's the power of the Spirit that brings us to conviction of our sin. It's the power of the Spirit that seals us for eternity. Look at Romans 8, 26. It's God the Holy Spirit who sets His seal upon us and sets us apart to serve Christ for eternity. 
Romans 8. I've got to tell you something. This is a, an often read text here, and I know that, verse 26 through 30. But I think that we may have missed something very important here as we've read through it looking for verse 28. What we're going to see here as I read this is you're going to see that God the Holy Spirit brings, according to this text, all the love gifts safely home to Christ. It's the Spirit who accomplishes what we rejoice in in verse 28. Likewise, the Spirit, there's the context. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what, we, what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There is the context for verse 28. It is the Spirit of God who is interceding for us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those, all of those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's by the work of the Spirit in sanctification and glorification. He conformed us to, be, to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That is the Spirit's work. The Spirit accomplished this. So, God the Holy Spirit brings us, through the work of the Son, because of the love of the Father, brings us to heaven. And that's a guaranteed promise. That's a sealed deal here. But not only that... It is God, the Holy Spirit, who brings us through difficulties on this earth. We don't need to forget that. If we try to fix our problems on this earth apart from searching the Scriptures and trusting in God, the Holy Spirit, to direct us, we will be confused, we will be struggling, we will never overcome because we're trying to do it on our own. Christ accomplished something so that we wouldn't have to trust in ourselves. He accomplished the righteousness of God for us, and by His Spirit, we are now empowered to walk accordingly, trusting in His Word, trusting in His guidance, because His Spirit now dwells in us. So it is all three that work. Mark 1 through, or 9 through 11 is telling us that. He's telling us that we are saved by God's triune grace. He's telling us that through Jesus' obedience, the Spirit's power, and the love of God the Father, we are saved. Not only that, we are secure. Salvation, sometimes people think, speaks of something that happened in the past. No, it's, it's ongoing. It's present. We are saved, being saved, and will be saved in the future at glorification. And all that is through the obedience of Christ, the Spirit's power, and because of the love of God the Father. That's the good news. You're saved by the triune grace of God. And God defines that in Mark's gospel as God's good news. God's gospel. It's a gospel that exalts the triune nature of God. It's a gospel that points to the finished work of Christ that comes as a result of the love of the Father and the Spirit's empowerment. All of the Christian life is of grace, and all three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead, are at work in our lives. That should help us. That should help us when you go through difficulties. You're not on your own. You have the triune grace of God on your side. But you must submit to His Word. Look to Him. Don't trust in yourselves. I mean, Jesus Himself didn't put confidence in His flesh, though He could have. 
He trusted in the Father's love and the Spirit's empowerment. And he fulfilled his ministry. I think if Christ could do that and he did that in our behalf, then we are called to follow his example and also trust in his accomplishment. So be encouraged and rejoice in the fact that Jesus was baptized for you. He was baptized into death for you. And he rose for you. And he is coming again for you. Let's pray and give him thanks. Father, we thank you for your gift. We thank you for the love you imparted to us through your Spirit's power, through the accomplishment of Christ. We thank you that you have kept us and you will keep us because you have chosen us to give us as a love gift to your Son, not based on what we have done, but what he accomplished in our place. You've guaranteed that would happen because your Spirit is present within us and you will persevere through your Spirit's power in us. We will come to the end rejoicing in the triune grace that you have bestowed upon us. To you be the glory, we pray this morning. We pray that as we study Mark, we would continually be changed by this Christology that we see here, that we would rejoice in the technicalities and in the truths And we'll be transformed as a result and rejoice in our confidence because our confidence is in Christ and what He did for us. Jesus, we love You. We thank You that You have granted us everything we need for life and godliness through Your Word and Your power, through Your Spirit. We thank You that You have given us peace with God the Father. We thank You that You have given us Your compassion and Your comfort. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be moving in our lives and shaping our lives, filling our lives as we are filled with your word so that we would point to Christ just as you did throughout his ministry. Lord, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives and are doing in our lives. We pray for those saints who aren't here this morning. We pray that you would bring comfort and conviction and correction where necessary in the lives of all of us here and not here this morning. Pray that you would be glorified through our repentance. We ask you to bless this day for your name's sake. Jesus, I ask this in your name. Amen.